Well, let's now welcome on a guy who's been on the show before, and it's always great to get his insights. Uh, Dan Rubenstein is joining us of the Solid Verbal, a must-listen-to college football podcast. He's on Heartland College Sports Weekly, part of heartlandcollegesports.com. I'm Pete Mundo. Thanks for being here. And guys, before we dive into it with Dan, if you could take a second out, leave us that rating, review, subscribe. It helps us out tremendously. Uh, we'll send you a free Heartland College Sports koozie in return. If you do that, just send me a screenshot of your rating and review to Pete Mundo, M-U-N-D-O, at heartlandcollegesports.com. Thanks so much. Appreciate that, guys. Dan, uh, obviously, you know, the sports world in general has been thrown for a, a major upheaval here. But based on where we think things are trending right now, we know the Big 12 is saying June 15th, you can start voluntary workouts. What do you think we're looking at here, Dan, for, for college football in 2020? So there are obviously two different paths here, right? There's the paths of public health officials, and there's the paths of college sports administrators, conference commissioners, and a desire on many different levels to, to have the sport at some point this fall from fans, from uh, teams, from you know, the powers that be. I think things are trending in a direction of there will be football in some sort of altered way with a quirk of some sort just because the energy is there, at least from those types of decision makers, if they get to go ahead from governors and public health officials, if they're able to, uh, to figure out a way to maximize the safety of everybody and take necessary precautions. So I'm optimistic that there will be a season in some form. I'm not necessarily smart when it comes to virology and epidemiology. <laughs> I'm the first to tell you what I don't know. And it's the same thing a lot of people don't know, which is what what is public health going to look like in July, August, September? I mean, we as, as college football fans and media aren't particularly good at interpreting sports data. So I'm not <laughs> sure we're fantastic at interpreting public health data. So to me, it's still very much up in the air what it looks like. But I, I get the sense that there will be something in the way of a season. I mean, we know uh, Iowa State announced this week, Dan, they're hoping to have 30,000 people at games. But it's interesting because, like, you know, you're in California – uh, that's got different mm -hmm. rules than Texas, that has different rules than Iowa. Like, I know TCU was, was talking about maybe playing Alabama, I believe it was, in Dallas because TCU is supposed to play Cal to start the year, and I think it's uh, uh, Alabama's playing USC, right? So if, if California's got right. different rules, I mean, that could throw this whole thing for a complete loop. It can throw the thing for a complete loop. Obviously, you know, case outbreaks and testing, it all varies by not even just state, by city, by yeah. county, by area. And so... The fact of the matter is, it's not even just the state protocol. It's how much can, can every school afford to spend the same amount taking safety precautions, giving tests? We, you know, are we at 100% with, with how accurate tests are? The last I checked, I don't think so, but I don't know. This is, not my, this is not my area of expertise. And so what happens if, you know, Arkansas State or Boise State or Minnesota or North Carolina State can't afford the same safety precautions as, USC or Alabama or Clemson, something like that. How, how is that at all a le level playing field? And we're talking about a sport that isn't necessarily based on a level playing field, but you, then you have safety concerns. We have players, we have parents, we have family members and coaches and relatives. And, you know, should a school be forced to meet certain safety protocols before full practice, full voluntary workouts for a season, for travel? There's, there's a ton of questions here. And I think you're right to talk about the state because, we, we don't fully know what is the result of certain things reopening. We had the California governor talk about trending towards reopening gyms, which is, which is huge towards 
reopening college campuses and, you know, practice facilities and weight rooms and things like that. So that seems to be a positive thing, but we don't know the effect of people in close contact and not super well circulated areas breathing heavily. And it's sort of a wait and see and react accordingly kind of thing. And every state is going to be different. Now, Dan, how how devastating would it be for um, not just these college football programs that we talk about constantly, but also, you know, some of the lesser programs that rely on an FCS program that relies on getting its butt kicked by, you know, Ohio State, but cash at a million dollar paycheck. I mean, this has the potential. I hope I'm wrong here, Dan, but in a worst case, it has the potential to alter college sports for, for years to come. It does. Oh, it absolutely does. And it's one of the, to me, tragedies. And I'm never a huge fan of, you know, these huge schools playing down a level and playing FCS schools or whatever, just because we want to see the best competition. We want to see the best games. We want to see the most dramatic games. But on a certain level, you understand it. You, you understand the responsibility of teams towards, uh, you know, a rising tide lifting all boats and helping the sport of football and expose the sport of football to people who are interested in watching. And occasionally you do get an app state beating Michigan as an FCS school and or North Dakota State beating Iowa. And those things are incredible for the sport, and it would be an enormous shame. And, you know, it's, it's I guess, a bigger conversation as to why that is, why mm-hmm. schools are, are so reliant on those big paydays from big programs to exist. But that's sort of a bigger conversation about funding and academics and football and how much schools should be reliant on football revenue to fund the things that they'd like to do as a university. But no, it's the the fact is that even though the FCS football isn't as popular as you know Power Five football, Group of Five football, people love this. People mm-hmm. you know form their falls around it. People form friendships. People form lifelong bonds around uh, football on all levels. So it would be catastrophic. Dan Rubenstein, Solid Verbal Podcast, is joining us here on the show. Uh, Dan, let's talk about the Big Twelve here. I mean, we know OU has dominated this conference. Uh, they do have actually, you know, they got to figure out the quarterback situation. Spencer Rattler seems to be the guy. But as you look at this conference this offseason, what is what is the storyline that you've been following or watching in the Big 12? So to me, what's interesting is what do the year two coaches and programs look like? What does Texas Tech look like? West Virginia, Kansas State, Kansas State, probably the, the clear winner in terms of optimism coming off of off of last season and then obviously a first year coach and Dave Aranda and, and dealing with something that uh, no other first year coach in the big 12 has had to deal with in recent memory in fielding a team, getting to know a team, installing an offense and a defense special teams under these circumstances. So what does Baylor look like coming off of a big 12 championship game appearance now having to deal with the adversity of having a first year coach on top of real life adversity. So that to me is interesting. Where does the improvement, what, it, what is just, what do new things look like? And then a school like Texas hiring two new coordinators and looking like they took a pretty big step back last year. And I don't know if it's fully the fault of those coordinators and Tom Herman being too involved in the offense, but what does a Mike Yersick offense look like with a senior quarterback and Sam Ellinger? What is uh, Chris Ash's defense look like as they go away from the three, four towards the four man front that he had a ton of success with at Ohio state. And is it sort of a problem that Tom Herman just kind of hires people he knows? I know he didn't do that with Todd Orlando when he was at Houston, but you see a lot of coaches sort of go outside of their their friend zone, for lack of a better term, and Tom Herman doesn't always do that. And so I'm curious to see how that does or doesn't pay dividends for the Horns. 
Now, it's interesting there, Dan. You know, you were talking about the second-year head coaches, and then you mentioned Dave Aranda. Are you buying – because we haven't talked, I don't think, since Aranda got hired. Are, are you buying that hire for the Baylor Bears based on what Aranda did, or are you, you know, a little concerned because the guy hasn't been a head coach? I'm not super concerned that he hasn't been a head coach. I think there's been interest in him. He's, he's very, very well regarded. He was always pretty quiet as an assistant, and I, I assume by choice. I've, you know, I've seen multiple stories, and I've heard from a lot of people that he's very careful about his words. He's not a big, outspoken, brash guy. But when you look at the guys who have made that transition well, from longtime coordinator to head coach, it generally works out with guys who have had success everywhere they've went, that they've connected with people really well. Because as we know, these are head coaches, but they're not really doing a ton of coaching of players. They're coaching assistants. They're building programs in their image. They're figuring out a way to, to best organize everything within a, a major business, essentially. And the fact is Dave Aranda has been around major businesses, you know, going from Utah State to Wisconsin to LSU and seeing how these places operate. A lot of these guys that succeed are taking notes along the way of what they like, what they don't like, the types of coaches they like, the types of coaches they don't like, what they want in terms of facilities, what they want in terms of uh, practice schedule. And I think the fact that he is that well-regarded coming from big programs like Wisconsin and LSU, I think you have to be optimistic. I think there has to be a certain degree of optimism that he just he gets results where he goes, and he is well-regarded as, as a thinker and as a tactician. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Dan Rubenstein's our guest. Um, so, Dan, of those second-year head coaches you mentioned in the Big 12, a K-State, KU, Texas Tech, West Virginia, who are you keeping the closest eye on in year two? I still K-State because I, I still think there's sort of a vacuum on the second year that can be filled we don't know about texas you know oklahoma state having the issues that they had last year and and baylor with a first year coach i think it's it's impossible to think that baylor maintains the level that they they reached last year especially on defense so i think it's still probably k-state i don't have their schedule memorized but i think it's somewhat advantageous in the non-conference part of the schedule Mm -hmm. and i know they i think they get texas at home i'm not sure about oklahoma oklahoma may be on the road and it k-state generally has like these weird backloaded schedules but I think it still is K-State because of what Chris Kleiman accomplished in North Dakota and what he showed in year one. And there's, uh, you know, Neil Brown having the success he did at Troy and Matt Wells having the success he did at Utah State, promising and less miles certainly, but I think Kansas has just sort of, there's always going to be three steps back until they're able to replenish on a talent level. So I think it's K-State first and foremost because of the the momentum from last season, but I, I don't think actually West Virginia is too far back. I like teams that even with a first-year coach, tend to fight hard in the back half of the season, even with a, a disappointing first half. And that, to me, was what West Virginia's 2019 looked like. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, Dan Rubenstein, Solid Verbal Podcast, joining us here on the show. Dan, Oklahoma State, uh, they have a Heisman contender out of the gates in Chuba Hubbard in the backfield. They've got uh, 10 of 11 guys coming back on defense. Spencer Sanders at quarterback. Are you buying Mike Gundy? Could this be that 2011 Brandon Whedon, Justin Blackman type of season? Or are you not seeing that for the Pokes? I don't know if I'm fully seeing that just because I'm not a full Spencer Sanders believer just yet. The interceptions kind of scammery, but mm-hmm. when you have that home run hitter in Chuba Hubbard and you can change the, the complexion of a game just by finding a lane, which really can. Um, I'm buying improvements. I, I don't like the turnover at coordinator with, uh, with Rutgers hiring away their offensive coordinator in uh, Sean Gleason. But I, I, I tend to like having that type of skill, that type of continuity on, on an offense. I just, I, I worry. I, I still worry about Oklahoma state that they just, 
that they're one of those teams that needs everything to click like it did in 2011 and having that experienced quarterback, which I think Brandon Whedon was 35 on that team. Um, <laughs> I, I need a little bit more from the quarterback position to fully believe in a special year for the Pokes. Oh, you, uh, Dan. I mean, it's been their conference. We know that uh, they are working in a, a quarterback and, and in Lincoln Riley's tenure at OU, he's never had to work in a high school quarterback in Spencer Rattler who redshirted last year, assuming he is the guy. Uh, is there any reason to believe that OU is is not going to be the favorite and is not going to be a team that, you know, come the end of the year is is the top dog in this conference? Uh, well, if you watch the defense against LSU, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's, some, there's some reason to believe that they're vulnerable. I don't know if there's a specific quarterback that can come anywhere near approaching what Joe Burrow was last year in the Big 12, but... Yeah, we saw it last year. We saw needing to hang on against uh, a Brock Purdy and Iowa State team that was pretty inconsistent. And so when you have, and, and I do think that the Sooner defense will be better this season with Alex Grinch, but when you put that effort, not okay, not effort, effort isn't fair. When you put that performance on a stage like they did against LSU and like they did at times last season, I don't think it's a shoo-in. I don't think it's a shoo-in for Oklahoma working in a quarterback and still having the issues that they have on defense. I just don't see who fills that that gap. I don't see anybody who is better situated, given Lincoln Riley's track record with quarterbacks and skill talent and offensive linemen. So I still think it's Oklahoma, but I don't think I'm any more confident than I am than I was in years past. Dan, let's wrap it up with Iowa State. I mean, they got a guy in Brock Purdy, a quarterback who could be a first-round pick next year. Is this the year for Matt Campbell and company to really break through up in Ames and reach that double-digit win number, or is 8-4 and four their ceiling? It may be the ceiling, and what Brock Purdy showed as a freshman was incredible, and I think his, the skill talent around him was better. He took a, a step back, a notable, noticeable step back last year. The big thing with, with Purdy to me is he seems to be a gamer. He gets up for the biggest games and somehow makes some poor decisions and big moments in the medium-sized games. So I'm a big proponent of I don't care what your best five passes look like. I want to see what the next 10, number six through 15, look like. And that, to me, especially with how Brock Purdy looked at the end of the Oklahoma State game last year and throwing the interceptions that he did with a lot on the line, that, to me, is concerning. As a junior, he should be able to, to put games like that in the past. This is, this is where he really should shine. So I understand the, the look at him and, and the look at his ceiling as a, a top, you know, a first-round pick, a second-round pick, whatever it is, in the draft. I, I, I hesitate to say Iowa State can be anything more than a 9-3 and three team, perhaps, but that's getting breaks. That's being yeah. lucky health-wise, that's winning close games, and that's developing players who perhaps were injured, who perhaps were overlooked, and, and fitting the system well. Because at this point, with how long Matt Campbell's been there, you know, he, he's shown himself to be very loyal to everybody in Ames and you know, signing extensions and staying despite interest from other schools. I think this has to be the year. When you have a junior quarterback who's shown as much as Purdy has, I, I think it has to be the year that they maximize their breaks. He's Dan Rubenstein, Solid Verbal Podcast. Dan, great to have you on talking some Big 12. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Anytime, Pete. He's Dan Rubenstein. I'm Pete Mundo. Thanks for listening, guys, and being a part of the show. And if you could, take a second out before you wrap up here and leave us a rating and a review. It helps us out a whole lot. We're growing every week because of you. And I'll send you a free Heartland College Sports Koozie in return. Just send me a screenshot of your rating and review to Pete Mundo, M-U-N-D-O, at heartlandcollegesports.com, and we'll get the koozie in the mail. Thanks so much, guys.